Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Word broke late uh, today, early this evening, that there might be some tentative deal struck uh, to avert a government shutdown. What can you tell us? Well, I can tell you that a lot of things have changed, and we'll see what happens. I can't uh, go into the exact deal. I just heard it very quickly coming over to see you. It was between uh, the deal and you, and I had to choose you because I had no choice, right? <laughs> and I'm very happy I did. But, uh, yeah, they're talking, and we'll see what happens. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a lot to discuss today here with a couple of my colleagues, uh, David walk us through. You're, you've got the agenda today. Hey, Josh, how are you? I'm good. And we have Tierney Sneed, our investigative reporter down in D.C. Tierney, how's it going? Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. You're kind of pulling double duty this week, I guess, right? You're not only on the Russia story, as always, for us, but you're up on the hill kind of covering the machinations and goings on of the government shutdown deal. Indeed. indeed. Still a pretty small shop. Exactly. So, well, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Pull over from Russia to handle the, the whole federal government. We all wear a few hats. It's yeah. true. Yeah. So today, I want to talk about a few things. We've got the contours of a deal to keep the government open. Uh, the deadline is this Friday coming up on the temporary short-term funding deal. We have, maybe a half a week ago, the um, this kind of explosive and entertaining Matt Whitaker hearing that I want to get Tierney's thoughts on. You were in the room, Tierney, is that right? Or were you in a I sort was, of over... I yeah. was. I want to hear about those groans and uh, and sighs and things like that that we heard. And then finally, I want to revisit the Jeff Bezos blog post from last Thursday in which he accused American media, the tabloid company, of extortion and blackmail over the kind of racy photos that they've begun to publish and ha- are threatening. I guess it's the texts so far. There the haven't text. been... Were there fo- I guess there were photos, but not, right. not photo photos. Not that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. Right. right, 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 right. Okay. So, Tierney, let's let's go through kind of what's been going on since last night. But before, before we do before that... A, we have a different funding deal. Right, let's to, hear that. Uh, our producer just flagging this to me. We can't forget that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is uh, sponsored and brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. Want to become a true office hero? Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42-serving bag-in-box from Grady's Cold Brew. Now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast. This coffee concentrate pours from a spigot, just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans-style flavor, freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. And and I'd be remiss if, if I didn't mention that, you know, we not only drink Grady's here in the New York headquarters of, of TPM, but I think they have it down in D.C. now, and we actually use the boxes. Yeah, yeah, we have both the... Uh the the boxed wine version. <laughs> we just cracked that open in that last week, and before that, we were using the the kind that you sort of make yourself by putting the the bags and the 
the water. So we have we've tried both versions, and both have been very great. Yeah, That's well, good. well, That's that, good. you know, if you're if. You know, we really try to like gun things here at TPM and and really kind of reach for the stars editorially. So if you're if you're going to do that, you need a lot of coffee. So we need it like in boxes. That's right. No and screwing around with the bags. You know what they say about the Grady's? They brew it strong. They do brew it strong. That's what okay. The box so says. we've got that business taken care of. Now let's let's get to the to the federal business. Right. So last night news broke that members of Congress is sort of bipartisan committee or working group had started to reach the contours of a deal. I think the top lines are what, $1.375 billion for border security, which I guess is sort of fences, not a wall necessarily. Yeah, $1.375 billion, which would fund 55 miles of quote-unquote border barriers. So we're playing the semantics game now of whether that's a wall or see-through slates. <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of construction jargon that we have to deal with in these negotiations. And Democrats had been hoping to get um, a lower cap on the number of beds um, the administration could use to detain immigrants. It sounds like they dropped that demand and they've settled on the number that's been sort of the same number that was last year's number. It's Um, just about 40,000, I think. Is that right? Yeah, 40,000 and change of beds. Now, Tierney, isn't isn't the issue here that at least what Democrats are trying to do is they're, they're trying to force... ICE to prioritize people who are here who've committed crime, something like that. And by creating these limits, they're... Yeah, so this is sort of where the the dispute came that threatened to blow up these negotiations, but it sounds like they were able to get them back on track. Democrats were arguing that the, the administration needs to prioritize who they're detaining, focused on violent criminals, not nonviolent civil violation immigrants. Republicans, of course, pushed back saying that this would hamstrung the administration and they wouldn't be able to do the enforcement they need to do. And it sounds like Democrats walked away from that fight and just settled on the deal that we saw today. And and the other thing is, so w- what I understood, at least on the, on the wall fence thing, is that obviously there's a lot of semantics, but I thought what the Democrats had successfully held out for is they can build the kind of things that were being built pre-Trump. pre-Trump yeah. Correct. It's a, it's a pretty narrow sort of agreement in terms of exact number of miles, where they're going to be. This is something that sort of would have happened regardless. It seems like a lot of attempts at face-saving here to find something that maybe we'll see Trump run around say was the wall that he promised. We're already seeing Last night, he's been sort of shifting his rhetoric on the wall. So a lot of this is about what is more face-saving for Trump than actual granting of his demands. Right. right. I, I noticed in the rally last night, I mean, the, the, the news broke about this deal kind of as Trump was on stage in El Paso with this big rally that's ostensibly like a 2020 rally, right? I mean, it's sort of a re-election campaign thing, but the signs all said, finish the wall. It's not build the wall anymore. It's finish it, which was kind of interesting to me. But it, but it does seem like Democrats were very careful to lock in a, a real position, but also a rhetorical position it would be to say, this is the fences we built before you got here, dude. Yeah. Like, don't tell us about it's the Trump wall, right. about how you're getting your wall. This is just sort of like, you know, normal upkeep and extensions of the old fence. Right. So one thing we're always curious about here at TPM is kind of the right wing conservative reaction, whether it's Ann Coulter, who was sort of partly to blame for torpedoing the previous 
compromise. We have a clip from Sean Hannity I want to play here quick last night, kind of responding in real time. The president addressing his supporters in El Paso, Texas. By the way, on this new so-called compromise, I'm getting details. $1.3 billion? That's not, a, not even a wall, a barrier? I'm going to tell this tonight, and we will get back into this tomorrow. Any Republican that supports this garbage compromise, you will have to explain. So it's interesting. Hannity, obviously, not totally uh, on board with the... Right, but he may not have gotten the marching orders. Yeah, that's because Fox and Friends this morning, actually... They're into it? They're into it, yeah. They said, um, that's a big step, right? You know, the Democrats didn't want any money for a wall, and they got $1.375 billion, and... See, I I just feel like I I want every Democrat to just be going like, you know, build a fence, dude. (laughs) Just trolling him over this fence. So Hannity's not happy. There was a quote from Mark Meadows in the Washington Post that, uh, yeah, tell us about sort of what's the reaction been like. Yeah, so that's sort of where where all the sort of attention is now is how does the far right react to this deal, as you recall, in December, as we were approaching the last government funding deadline, we had a similar sort of deal. The Senate had passed it very easily. And then the day between when the Senate passes it and when the House is going to bring it up, there's this far-right reaction against the deal. Trump expresses that he's no longer on board, even though he had sort of signaled that he was on board previously. And then you see the deal go down in the House. What's different now is obviously Democrats control the House now, and no one I've talked to thinks that there's a chance that, for whatever Mark Meadows or Jim Jordan thinks about this deal, that they'll be able to tank it on their own in the House. It would really be a question of whether they would be able to influence the president into vetoing it. In that case, then the question would be whether there would be some sort of attempt at a veto override or or what. So everyone's paying close attention to how the sort of far-right media is reacting, because we know that does have a lot of sway over the president, and whether that causes him to veto the deal and what happens next there. So, Tierney, in that in that sort of abortive deal in, at the end of uh, uh, 2018, did that have this kind of mini build-the-fence provision? Did it have like, kind of like limited fence money like this one does? It was a CR, continuing resolution, so I think it was a, a status quo sort of, okay. let's push this, these negotiations two months down the road, get through the holidays. At the time, Senate Republicans were pushing a $1.6 billion offer on quote-unquote border security, which Democrats opposed. Who knows if they had just done the CR and sort of kept the negotiations open and hadn't sort of lost some of that political capital that Republicans lost and being blamed for the shutdown, whether that $1.6 billion number would be sort of the, the starting point in the deal that we're seeing today. But I also kind of want to point out that a year ago, or near, nearly a year ago, back in, 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 I think, March 2018, Trump had in front of him an offer for $25 billion for a wall in exchange for DACA protections. And everyone thought that he had agreed to that deal before the far-right elements in his administration and in, in the Congress blew it up seeking a crackdown on legal immigration. So what's been really remarkable over the, of the course of this two years of watching him negotiate around a wall is that sort of the pool of money that's been in play for him has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And also, my understanding is that that, that offer was for like a legit yeah, wall. it was really... Not to fall back to this build the fence plan. Take yes for an answer, Mr. Full President. Wall. You know, give us the, the DACA yeah, protection. Yeah, yeah, And I, I think Democrats walked away from that meeting with him thinking that they had made the deal. And 
I talk to lawmakers who are pretty vocal immigrant rights activists who said, you know what, I will build that wall myself if you can give the, the protections to these young immigrants that we're seeking. And because of the Stephen Miller elements in, in the party, he reversed course on that deal, said, no, I want cut legal immigration. And I think that's really haunted him in these negotiations that Democrats don't really want to stick their necks out there again because Trump has not proven himself to be a trustworthy negotiator. Uh, let me let me ask you one thing, Tierney, because this this sort of um, matches with what my sense is, is that a lot of pro-immigrant activists, people outside Congress, people in Congress, my sense is in a lot of these cases that, you know, the wall is is a big waste of money. It is symbolically offensive in terms of our attitudes towards the rest of the world. But my sense has been that pro-immigrant activists have been relatively open to a compromise that included it because at the end of the day, it's just a thing that's sitting there. It's not like, you know, it's not separating a family in itself. It's it's not changing the formulas for immigrant visas and whatever. I'm not saying anybody's into it, but that there has been or at least there was an openness if you could get something concrete like like a DACA protections, which which weren't kind of hanging on by a thread as as an executive action, but something that was actually legislative. Yeah, all these major deals over the past, not just the Trump administration, but in the Obama years, always had you know some level of enforcement. So I think Democrats have always been willing to sort of negotiate on more quote unquote security and. Like you said to them, there's obviously a lot of problems with the wall that they have, but if the price is right and you give them something that is really valuable to them in, in this long course of immigration deal-making, that they're willing to, to bargain there. So, so far, McConnell came out on the Senate floor this morning and said, you know, congratulations to the group that brokered this deal and said, certainly good news. Seems like he's basically on board, Tierney, is that right? And we're kind of waiting just to see how Trump responds next, is that right? Yeah, there was a really interesting shift with Leader McConnell's rhetoric in the last few weeks. If you recall, when the first round of sort of shutdown chaos was ensuing, his line was, you know, I'm not going to pass anything that the president's not going to sign. That would be a waste of time. What we saw once we got to this point of having this bipartisan, bicameral conference negotiating this, is he wasn't taking so hard of a line. He said, I want to see what the deal they come up with. I'm hopeful they'll come up with the deal, and I'm hopeful the, the, the president will sign it. So the softening he had there was, I think, really, really important that it sort of gave these negotiators enough leash to say, you know, let's not think about the president. Let's just kind of get to the table ourselves and come up to a deal we're happy with and, you know, force Trump's hand here. Right. I know Hogan Gidley, who is a White House spokesperson, went on Fox just about the same time McConnell was giving his speech or maybe shortly after saying, you know, we haven't seen the compromise yet. We'll have to, I'm not sure if Trump is going to be able to sign it or not. So I think maybe they're waiting to see how some conservatives react or sort of trying to plot out their next move? Well, presumably, Tierney, this is this is in in his usually opaque and, and understated way, McConnell basically saying, we're not doing that shutdown thing again. Like we're not or we're at least not following you over that cliff um, and, and, and trying to 
you know, th- that's always the thing with McConnell. People get into these uh, uh, other leaders get into these fights with with Trump and McConnell's never willing to do that. He never it's it's never in Trump's face. It's all kind of by implication, basically. Right. So. Yeah, well, I think Trump is having a cabinet meeting basically as we speak. And so we'll see pretty soon what, what those live cabinet <laughs> what, meetings. What his uh, response is. Right, right, right. So anyways, I want to shift gears a little bit, Tierney, while we have you and talk about this Whitaker hearing last week. So this was Matt Whitaker is the acting attorney general, was appointed by Trump uh, in the wake of Jeff Sessions kind of humiliating departure. And this was sort of the first time we had really seen him in front of cameras or in front of a congressional committee basically ever, right? Sort of set the scene for us, Tierney. What was the context of this hearing and the reason for its being and all that kind of so stuff? So this is a, a, a much-anticipated hearing for a number of different reasons. As you mentioned, Matt Whitaker, since taking the job in November, really hasn't had a lot of questions posed to him. He's only done one very brief press conference since taking over the DOJ and has done, before last week, zero congressional hearings. So there's been literally months of questions sort of lingering over why he was selected that he was finally going to be pressed on. And in a sort of broader sense, this is also shaping up to be kind of a first major confrontation point between Democrats and the House and the Trump administration over the oversight that House Democrats are going to try to do. There was this threat of a subpoena fight that was sort of percolating before Friday's hearing that we covered pretty closely Democrats ultimately backed down from subpoenaing him in the chair, as, you know, at, at some points it looked like could have been possible, uh, but they did grill him quite a bit. You could argue about whether they were successful or not in getting any more clarity or transparency into what the DOJ has been up to under his leadership, but it was a major, major moment kicking off the Democratic era of oversight of the Trump administration. Right. And so the subpoena issue kind of started around whether he would invoke executive privilege over his conversations with the White House or the president. Is that right? And It's a little bit more complicated than that. The problem that lawmakers, particularly Democratic lawmakers, have had in the last two years is that they have these administration officials that come before Congress, oppose questions about, you know, reports that Trump may have pressured them to do this or that that's inappropriate. And they say they don't invoke executive privilege. That's something technically that only the president can do. But they say in deference to the possibility that the White House might at some point want to invoke executive privilege over these conversations or these decisions, I'm not going to answer your question. And what's been frustrating to Democrats is that there's sort of a process that you go through to sort of push and pull and negotiate around this sort of nebulous idea of executive privilege and find accommodation that that gives some transparency to Congress that also gets the White House to sort of cave a little bit before taking it to court. But because they haven't had subpoena power, they haven't really been able to sort of force that process to go forward. And that what we saw this, this past week was Chairman Nadler attempted to both, you know, get that process going and sort of fast track it by telling uh, Matt Whitaker last month Here's a list of questions we're going to be asking you about, about your conversations with, the, with Trump or the White House about DOJ investigations. You can tell us now, 48 hours before the hearing, whether the White House is going to invoke executive privilege of all of those. We want to hear now, not end the hearing, whether you're going to answer these questions. And he, instead of meeting that deadline, the DOJ uh, didn't initially respond 
Nasler gets uh, approval from his committee to issue a subpoena if need be during the hearing. DOJ pushes back and says, Whitaker won't come to the hearing unless you back down from the subpoena threat. And it seems like there was some sort of compromise, if you want to call it that, was they let Whitaker come, you know, the agreement that he would not be subpoenaed. But Nadler seems to want to get him seated for a deposition where he can answer a lot of these questions. And it sort of floated that he would still be willing to subpoena Whitaker to make this deposition happen. What is your sense, Tierney, of who got the better of that confrontation? Did Nadler, like, fold at some level? What was the perception of that, how that played out? I mean, I I do think it was a little bit of a cave just because they had made such a big show of having a, you know, a markup to do the subpoena and and the multiple letters. And I can understand why there might have been some cold feet in the committee. Maybe they decided we're better off at least getting him in front of the committee to answer some of our questions than him blowing us off entirely. I mean, a part of what complicated this whole affair is that Bill Barr is likely to be confirmed by the Senate this week. And who knows whether Whitaker will stay at the DOJ, whether he'll be somewhere else in the administration, whether he'll go back to the private sector. So I think there was also a lot of pressure to get Whitaker in the chair answering questions before he was no longer acting attorney general. So I think there was a lot of different things that the committee was juggling. And I I, I don't have a full, full understanding of why Nadler came to the decision that he came to. But Republicans were pretty quick to jump on him and say this was a full-blown cave, as uh, the ranking member, uh, Rep. Doug Collins, said. So they're certainly trying to paint it that way. I think a major question is what we sort of see come out of this hearing in terms of whether they're able to get a deposition or uh, issue a subpoena down the road or get a guarantee from the Justice Department that Whitaker will come back even when he's no longer acting attorney, in which case I don't think... Democrats necessarily lost anything by coming to this agreement, but we still don't know how successful they're going to be down the road. Right. I want to get into a little bit of what we actually saw during the hearing itself. So we have one moment I want to play a clip of, and then we can we can discuss quick. In your capacity as acting attorney general, have you ever been asked to approve any request or action to be taken by the special counsel? Mr. Chairman, uh, I see that your five minutes is up, and so uh, <laughs> I'm... We, 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 I am here, I'm here voluntarily. I, we have agreed to five-minute rounds. And so, Tierney, you were in the room. I, I'm just curious, what was that moment like, you know, seeing it unfold in person? I have a hard time thinking of another time that I've been in a committee room where there's been such a reaction to a, a moment like that. Uh, we, there was gasps. There was also sort of laughter that... Whitaker would have this sort of retort. <laughs> it just seemed kind of lame because, you know, Nadler was just saying, hey, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm the in charge of enforcing that rule and I'm going to make you answer. Yeah, it just seems sort of silly. It's their <laughs> rules. It's not his rule. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a great picture that the CQ roll call photographer took where you just saw the Democrats sort of aghast, but almost a comically aghast that, that he had that, that response. Um, but I did think it sent the tone of, you know, a very combative hearing where Whitaker didn't really show a lot of respect or deference to the Democrats and, and, and would almost mock them for, for trying to get answers from him. I guess one question, and, and at, a, at a certain level, this is like theatrics and stuff like that but it does it does have a more important impact as we look out over the next year over the next 2 years about just what the what the relationship is um 
does he was there any sense that oh you know that's not going to go well for him over time or just like told Nadler to kind of you know fuck himself and and he gets to do that and there's and there's no and there's no consequence yeah what was your I sense mean with a moment like the one we just played it's hard to watch that and not think that there's an audience of one here and that's President Trump and Anyone else who would say that he looked like a fool or he was rude or he was arrogant, I think we can surmise that President Trump was probably pretty impressed by that that retort. And it's going to be interesting to see whether we see other administration officials sort of follow that path of performing specifically for Trump instead of showing the sort of normal deference and respect and more muted posturing that bureaucrats normally show in these hearings, even if they're not being particularly right. transparent or forthcoming. It's funny, the whole his whole appearance kind of was a bit of a greatest hits of Trump lines, right? He was saying he was concerned about how CNN showed up at the Roger Stone house before the FBI raid, even though CNN has reported pretty transparently that they were sort of tipped off or curious about some grand jury action that was happening on a day that was kind of unusual and you know, they have lots of reporters all over the country. They can send people anywhere they want, and they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. He also said, Whitaker said, there is no family separation policy at the Justice Department, right? Which is kind of like a weird semantic thing that he's trying to say, a needle he's he's trying to thread. So he was kind of playing to the Trump line, I don't know, the whole time. Right? Yeah, really. it, was, it was just telling to, to watch sort of his attitude and body language and posturing change between... Democratic and, and Republican members' questions, because you actually did have Republicans asking him questions about the investigations. I mean, for their own reasons, you know, they were trying to suss out from him proof that Mueller's probe is a witch hunt or whatnot. And even when he was sort of addressing those questions, as you mentioned with Roger Stone, he sort of played into it and said there were concerns. And he wouldn't be so resistant or combative when saying, I can't answer that. That's a sensitive, ongoing investigation. He was a little bit more wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I can't answer, but uh, have concerns. So that was certainly telling just how he changed his tone between the two parties, um, and even though both of them were seeking that he talk about ongoing investigations. Right. And so you mentioned, Tierney, earlier in our conversation about this hearing that Nadler, at the end of the hearing, basically said he wanted some more answers, right, and that he left open the possibility of a subpoena. Bill Barr is about to be confirmed as full-on attorney general would occur, maybe is angling for a chief of staff job, or or like you say, he'll go on to something is, is else. That, is that, just from what you hear d- down there, Tierney, is that real, this idea that he might be chief of staff? Or is that just people kind of like Yeah, I haven't heard anything. Spitballing, sort of, and we have no idea. Any of my own reporting sort of confirming those rumors, so it's hard to know whether that's, you know, actually something that was based on reporting and things that being said seriously in the administration or people just sort of speculating because he does have the uh, outward appearance of such a Trump loyalist henchman sort of vibe. But I haven't right, heard anything right, myself right. that sort of backs up that that uh, prediction. So is the threat of a subpoena still kind of a real thing? I mean, is there anything else we need to be on the lookout for when it comes to I mean, Whitaker? One thing that was interesting um, is that the DOJ has sort of kept it, been very coy about this. You know, when they were sort of explaining their position about the subpoena fight. Uh, I was on a call with some uh, senior DOJ officials, and someone asked, you know, this whole time element, well, you know, part of the the issue here is that Bill Barr is going to be the attorney general in a week, and, you know, are you going to make him available? And they were very coy and said, we'll take it under advisement. We'll see, you know. So, you know, I don't think 
the DOJ is planning on voluntarily making him super accessible. Um, but we'll we'll see what what the result is of any sort of uh, agreement between him and Nadler. And I didn't hear any verbal commitments from him uh, from Whitaker that he would show up for this this deposition. But I guess if Nadler is willing to subpoena subpoena him and go through with it this time, then he might force his hand. All right, Tierney, thank you for joining us. Appreciate you making some time on thank a busy day, and me. we'll look forward to seeing the reporting later today. Yep. All right, before we get to our last topic of the pod, I just want to remind our listeners uh, about some ways they can support TPM. Yeah, well, you know, we uh, uh, if you are a, a regular podcast listener and you're also a reader of TPM and you're not a subscriber, we're uh, trying really hard to get up to 30,000 subscribers overall. Um, We're still a few hundred short. So um, again, if you listen to the podcast, if you're a regular reader of the site, uh, give it a try. Um, there's a lot of additional content, uh, fewer ads. You can also you can also try our ad free subscription, which is a few bucks more. Uh, but anyway, this is how you know this is this is how uh, independent media organizations, uh, news organizations, are making a go of it today. So if you're a regular, uh, try giving it a shot. And you can you know uh, if you're if you're not a subscriber, go to the website up at the upper right. There's a thing that says join. You just click through yeah, there. And we it's make it easy for you. Yeah, we make yeah. it very easy. And we appreciate it. Yep. All right, Josh. So we had kind of an extraordinary story unfolding over the last week, which was Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, the CEO of Amazon, a company that we all interact with basically in one way or another, um, probably more days than not, published an extraordinary blog post accusing American Media, the publisher of the National Enquirer, which is a tabloid you can pick up in the grocery store, of blackmail and extortion over threatening to publish explicit photos between his girlfriend and I. Have you ever seen an executive at his level come out with a public statement in such a way? I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like remotely like it. Uh, you know, there, there, there's there's so many different levels of this. And, and, you know, and it's funny when, you know, he didn't, in a sense, he didn't allege or claim that they were trying to blackmail him. He just laid it out. He proved it. I mean, again, there's a legal question of whether or not this fits like federal uh, extortion or blackmail statutes. And I've heard differing opinions on that. I mean, I think that one of the, one of the recurrent things in stories like this, to the extent that you can say stories like this, is that if you have good lawyers, there are way to black. There are ways to blackmail people without it being uh, indictable as blackmail. Um, but and and you know the 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 weird thing about this is that at at one level, like let's say that you know there's always been. Uh, scandal sheets, and if they found out that he's having an affair and they publicized it, um, you know that's sort of you know celebrity news, and everybody has. And you he's know, a public figure, yeah, and... public figure, and there's a certain kind of uh, you know just everybody has a lurid interest or whatever. But if it's just that, it's kind of like whatever, you know. Uh, there's always there's always supermarket tabloids and people, you know, famous people having an affair and all this kind of stuff. But the the additional thing with this is that we know going back two or three years now that the National Enquirer is not just a, you know, a scandal supermarket tabloid. It also works as it's kind of like a criminal syndicate um, that ha- they have friends that they 
that they attack people on behalf of, and they also seem to have this practice of holding, in some ways, the juiciest stuff back to blackmail people. Right. Um, whether or not that is, uh, you know, exactly how they go about it is one thing, but, you know, if, if this movie star, they've got something really big on him, uh, maybe they they basically say, well, we're not going to do that, but you better be friendly to us. You better tell us when you got it. You know, all that kind of, yeah. all or, you know, kind of drop a dime on your friend and all this kind of stuff. Now, so, and and then the the parent company of, of the National Enquirer, AMI, because of the Stormy Daniels and Karen, Karen McDougal stuff, is already in a non-prosecution agreement in, in, with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. It's basically like an immunity agreement, slightly different. So they're already deep into a criminal investigation. We know they do this kind of stuff. We know they are a make themselves sort of an enforcer for President Trump. We also know they have this relationship of some sort with the Saudi government. And that's an and relationship of some sort is not a is not an accusation i mean they even put out like a little special right, mohammed was, bin salman exactly who's the crown prince of saudi arabia <laughs> accused of premeditated yeah, basically yeah, uh, state-sponsored killing of a yeah, journalist with yeah. the washington post yeah yeah it was a 13 dollar uh, yeah like a I little, mean, an ex- sort of an expensive yeah issue like a little for glossy kind of thing, thing that is ever you know this was a couple came out years in ago. march i think came out in march 2018 so maybe about a year ago okay yeah, yeah. so so and then in you know, despite, you know, in addition to the titillating stuff in that in that Bezos post, he made very clear that he thinks that Saudi, maybe Trump, but especially Saudi Arabia is in some way involved in this. Now, we know that um, we know that President Trump is a, you know, hates Jeff Bezos because of the Washington Post and all that kind of stuff. And. We also know that uh, the Saudis have a very close relationship with President Trump, so maybe they would want to, you know, kind of beat up on his enemies to help him out. But they also have their own beef with the Washington Post because, as you said, uh, this Jamal uh, Khashoggi. Khashoggi guy who was who was killed in 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 Turkey, pretty clearly on the direct orders of the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. The Post, since they had this r- relationship with him, then he was a columnist for them, very upset. And they have sort of championed this issue, wanting to get the truth, wanting to get justice over it. And done a lot of just a lot of reporting on how the circumstances yeah. of Khashoggi's yeah. killing. Yeah. And that has made um, <clears throat> that ap- that appears to have made the Saudis very upset with The Washington Post. So they have and and. Bezos owns the Washington Post. So you can you can sort of see how both Trump and the Saudis have a real interest in screwing around or um, intimidating Jeff Bezos. And so and so here again, if it's just like he had an affair, someone, you know, kind of told on him. Then it's just that kind of pretty run of the mill. Yeah, that's run of the mill, and that's and that's life, and it's it's consequences for his personal life, but not not too much more. But here we get into this very this much more serious possibility of a sitting president, 
um, using an organization like the National Enquirer as a kind of a weapon to use against his enemies, possibly a foreign state doing that. Uh, Obviously, a foreign state could potentially use its intelligence capacities to actually get the secret information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Bezos was sort of directly, I want to say, you know, clearly suggesting that that's what this is really about. They, he, there hasn't, they haven't put forward any evidence right. exactly. And now in the reporting over the last couple of days, it seems like Bezos's investigator and the National Enquirer agree that it is the girlfriend's brother, right, who was at least in the in a, in the most direct sense the person who gave them the stuff. So, yeah, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, I uh, I don't know. You know, it's it's um, there's a, there's a few different things. <laughs> you know, one thing is like how does like let's say let's let's think in terms of the most innocent explanation. You know. He just got her texts and decided to, you know, rat her out. First of all, you know, brothers and sisters can be close, but like you really have access to someone's cell phone. Yes, that's that's, I certainly don't. Yeah, that that's not really how that how that works. And then there's a, 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 a separate question of, you know, how close is their relationship? I mean, that's that's a pretty. That's a, a, a pretty destructive thing to do. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I only found out last night he's also her manager the brother is yes which which makes this and she's a former like she's a tv personality she's like a talk show host right. i think and maybe also you know kind of uh was a was a a news person and talk show host something like that she's sort of like a a a, a personality in the la media market mm-hmm. um she's married to a a guy who's very high up in Ari Emanuel's you know, gotcha. kind of mega Hollywood, yeah, Hollywood situation. Agent. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and, and, and yet another thing I haven't been clear on is that, and this has been very opaque. Are they still in a relationship? Bezos like, and yeah, her. Yeah. I mean, because like that has been, I, I have not seen anything specific on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is odd to me. I mean, you could see how that the relationship would right. fall apart or, or whatever, but like, if it's really the blood, if it's really the brother, wouldn't she be kind of mad at him? I mean, to put it mildly, yeah. um, especially if they if if she and Bezos are still in a relationship. Right. Um, but so then you have the you have an entire other question of okay, maybe he gave it to the Inquirer, but where did he get these things? Um, and so. Uh, at the moment, I think um, you you had written over the weekend, maybe or earlier this week, that Bezos wouldn't have sort of floated the Saudi connection just kind of on a whim or a, and that there, you know, there might be something a little bit more there that we're not that might not be clear yet. That's my sense, and I actually um, I corresponded with a few people over the weekend who know Bezos, not know him very well, but have worked at high level, you know, high executive positions at Amazon, and. As you would, I mean, as you would expect with Amazon, Amazon is, if nothing else, it, you know, it's almost like the Borg in terms of like planning, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 what these people all said was, 
this is not someone who ever goes off half cocked, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, or doesn't or isn't always a thousand percent prepared when he does something, which again sounds like the you know sounds like the business that 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 we know. Yeah. So, and if you if you if you think about how this happened, I mean, he he goes out there. He we haven't seen these pictures, but he talks about their existence. He is an. Extreme... He leaves in the. He leaves in the kind of explicit details. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he is. This is even for someone who's the wealthiest man in the world, owns one of, or you know is the CEO and 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 uh, largest single owner of of one of the biggest companies in the world. This is a big move. He's putting himself out there in a big way. He is opening himself up to a high level of, of personal embarrassment. And this is also, just sorry to interject, it's, it's amid his company's expansion plans, right, into suburban D.C. and also New York City. So there's he, a lot of kind of Yeah, there's sticks. a lot of, lot of stuff going on. It, it doesn't, it seems to me that I think it is difficult for me to see that he would have done this if he didn't think there was a big story going on in the background, because let's say that um, let's say he goes out there, he sort of hints about, you know, the Saudis being angry at the Washington Post because of Jamal Khashoggi and maybe the Saudis are behind this and Trump's my enemy, too. And let's say it just turned out like, you know, the brother's kind of a dick and right. he like gave your pictures to the National Enquirer. I think that would make him look kind of silly making it sort of, you know, this very like making it like there's a lot of big stuff involved right. here and I'm going to get to the bottom of it and I'm not um <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to my personal embarrassment isn't as important as as this. Right. That would seem I don't think he would come out looking too good in in that case. And given that and given it it just doesn't square to me that he would have insinuated those things, hinted at those things, if he and his people didn't already know some stuff. Right. So I'm still thinking there's there's more to this story. And if there is more to this story, this isn't just some random thing about a billionaire's personal life. That's obviously part of it. But it goes to... It's part of kind of everything that has happened during the Trump era. Right. You know, foreign governments uh, sort of getting themselves into our domestic politics, hacking, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of... uh, this kind of opaque world of blackmail and NDAs right. that that is we know is sort of how the Trump world works yeah. and is increasingly how sort of like the U.S. seems to work sure. under his presidency. So there's a lot there. I think one it's, question, it's pretty significant. One question I have is, do we know anything about the National Enquirer's relationship with the Saudis before this kind of magazine came about? Was it just a lucrative business opportunity, you think? or I, I, My understanding is that... Um, 
they I think they did some publishing thing together, maybe as far back as 2015. Hmm. So they had done something together. They did the thing, the big sort of, you know, MBS special issue yep. um, in 2018. And that coincided with his... The Crown Prince's visit to the U.S. Right, that was I kind of the pe- the news peg, yeah, as we would I, say. I, I think so. And and then there was this thing where, um, I think in early 2017, uh, Trump had a meeting maybe with Mohammed bin Salman or other Saudi dignitaries, and he invited David Pecker, who's the head of AMI. Right. So that was, and that was. Um, interpreted as, you know, thanks for the help, mm-hmm. and here's some guys who have got a ton of money. Because one of the things that is that has been pushed to the background in this story is that the inquirers is apparently not in great financial shape. They need, like, a big infusion of cash. I don't know if... Um, I had heard at one point that, uh, you know, their sort of Trump obsession had hurt their sales. Mm. Um, but I think it's also, like many, like many big... Uh, corporate-backed media companies now, th- they just have a lot of debt, yeah. um, and so you can you can be in financial uh, you can be in a financial jam even if people are still even if your audience is still reading your publication. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's lots of different stuff yeah. here, and again, it's it's that it's that opaque world that is what I think the Trump world has always been, and maybe where we have been going in the U.S. with a politics that is increasingly dominated by, um, you know, by billionaires and their activities and and what they're able to do with the power of their money. And their lawyers. Yeah, yeah, and their lawyers. But Trump, the Trump world increasingly becoming coterminous with the U.S. has kind of brought all this stuff to the fore. And that's why I think this is, this story is potentially a very big deal um, even though on the surface it seems like you know kind of tawdry yeah, yeah tabloid nonsense. we haven't seen any like congressional responses or anything like that I don't think so really I think you know we're looking to news reporting to basically uncover yeah and there's actually and one of the frustrating things is is I mean I've been waiting for like the next thing and there really hasn't been much of a the next latest thing is really so the far. Daily Beast reporting that the brother was the source for these messages and, and it, the AP confirmed that last night that's so right. that seems pretty nailed down yeah exactly point. but yeah beyond that yeah not much movement otherwise and and uh yeah it's it's well I guess the the thing that is that is still in play is that um, the again, AMI has this non-prosecution agreement in New York with the, right. with the U.S. Attorney's Office, in, in, and there was reporting last week that prosecutors are looking into the case, looking into this situation to see whether either these emails, this kind of effort to get Bezos to back down from his investigation into AMI or to stop claiming that it was politically motivated, that whether that did violate their agreement with prosecutors. Right, right. And, and, and that is another, again, it's kind of a, it, it's a bit of a mystery that, that you know, in, in that, as I understand it, in that agreement, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York basically has the right to, like, come in, open your books whenever the hell they want. It was want. like a three-year deal, right? Yeah, it was, so it's you a, can't commit crimes for three years. Yeah. After a, that, yeah, you know. <laughs> you're on your own. Yeah. So it's one of these things where they're in a very vulnerable position. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly if it turns out that their hands are clean, at least in terms of, you know, 
nothing to do with the president, nothing to do with, with the Saudis. Maybe they're in the clear, but it's surprising they would do something like this when they are, you know, they're, they're under a kind of almost like, you know, federal, federal law enforcement receivership. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to be on their best behavior. Well, a, a former, um, excuse me, a former Los Angeles bureau chief, senior editor for the Inquirer, went on CNBC late last week and said there had been sort of a falling out between Trump and Pecker and the and the kind of company in the you know after this prosecution agreement, non prosecution right. agreement was reached, and that things had kind of gotten cold between the the two parties, and that this was sort of a way of maybe getting back into the good graces of Trump. This right. Bezos story, which yeah, may, which 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 makes sense and you could certainly see how how trump would have been a little bummed and just to be fair this the i'm forgetting the the guy's name he left the inquirer i think in maybe 2015 i think was the result of cutbacks or whatever so it's not like he's in the room but he right i think he'd worked there for 20 or 30 years yeah and and knew and and i I think he's the one who like maybe a few months ago gave an interview who said you know there's this like what there's like a safe in the office right. where all the kind of the secrets uh, are hidden yeah, yeah all the secrets are hidden so yeah who knows it's it's I, I still um i still have a feeling this is a big story again just because um jeff bezos did not have to do this he could have he could have dealt with this in a lot of other ways and again just from my sense of him uh, both him kind of characterologically, the amount of resources he has, I don't see him kind of making this big a play unless he felt there was a something important at stake and something that would end up with him looking good yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. He's notoriously press shy despite being the owner of one of mo- the most important newspapers in the country. But you know, he even chose to publish this I don't know, not essay, but this post, not in the Washington Post, but on medium.com, sort of a separate, you know, neutral thing. So we'll see. Yeah, I think it'll be big, but we will see. So, all right. So uh, I guess um, we're finishing up. I have. I, I always have to remind myself that we are, I mean, not that I would forget, but how that, could we forget? Yeah. How could we forget? The Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right. Thanks, Josh. Later. See you next week.